This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Twitter. What's, what's that? <laughs> what is that? What is the Croydon thing? So we did a. So John and I did a um, series of gigs. Not last year, but the year before already. Oh God! In Croydon, we did a series of gigs called Croydon Till I Die. <laughs> with with fellow Croydon residents, Lucy Mangan came and did one, and Bob Stanley. You don't live in Croydon, or did you used to live in Croydon? Yeah, I grew up near Croydon. Oh, he's and got in Croydon. To prove I went it. to Croydon every Saturday afternoon <laughs> from the years 1973 to 1985. The only thing I know about Croydon is the population is the same as Iceland. Yes, it is. 325,000. John, tell John about our triumphant homecoming gig. <laughs> well, we did, we did a show at Croydon Fairfield Halls, which, you know, is... You Famous know, place. Yeah, it's a fantastic... Yeah, well, it is. And also, Only place you know, I've ever played my mum was impressed with, I tell you. And, lo- you know, loads of bands, loads of really famous bands like Kraftwerk and Sparks and people have played there over the years. So it's, you know... It's and fun. Captain Sensible was... Yeah, well, he was... He cleaned the toilet. The toilet yes, attendant. Was, yes, that's right. Yes, um, good music treasure, Matt. Great. And uh, yeah, so we got to play this kind of like you know, three hundred and fifty people. And yeah, they had got, to bring those extra chairs in, didn't they? We, it's amazing. We played the Arnhem Gallery in uh, in the Fairfield Halls, and when we arrived, the the steward said, "Yes, we're expecting about oh, I don't know thirty or forty, and we're going to move you into a smaller room." <laughs> And so John and Bob went to the bar to go, oh, well, never mind. We'll put everyone down the front. And then when they opened the doors, like 350 people came in, <laughs> including my auntie Linda, who I deliberately hadn't told about the gig. It's like the producers. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was amazing. It was, yeah, it was. It, they, it, they liked it. Yeah. Or it was like a scene from Ben-Hur. It just felt like all these extras just kept flooding in all the time. It's like, oh, my God, there's more people than the room can hold. What's going Hashtag on? famous in Croydon. It was, it was very we'll exciting. We'll have wine, women and song and women. <laughs> um, they rely on the producers. <laughs> oh, it's one of the best nights of my life. Oh, it was a brilliant. That was an amazing night. Amazing. Was, well, it's very exciting. How was Christmas? Uh, it was brilliant. My time zones were a, a week in New Zealand. Oh, you were in New Zealand. Strange. No, I wasn't in New Zealand for Christmas. I came back on twenty third. So, so I was a bit topsy turvy. But it's it's brilliant for reading. Plane travel is. I always think I should just every month I should go on a very very long because there's nothing there is literally nothing else to do. You think, oh I'll watch some of the in-flight movies and yeah, one good film, Captain Fantastic, and the rest of it was. I mean I could have watched the whole of Lord of the Rings again. I could have watched the whole of the Hobbit again. Although why would you? Well, weirdly, my brother was in it, which was kind of amusing. At one point, I was sitting next to a, a Japanese girl, and I, was, I put, said, that's my brother in there, just there. And she looked and looked again. She said, incredible! I said, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. What part um, did your brother play? He p- <laughs> Third orc from the left. He played, no, he played, he had, a, he had a few lines. They weren't terribly good lines, like, they're over there or this way. But he was called Braga. He had a, not only did he have a named character, but he also had a Lego model. So, um, Bro, while I was, yeah, I recognise that I was name. In, while I was in New Zealand, he got, um, 
he got a royalty. He got a royalty check. Yeah, from, um, and he's actually weirdly, I, he's become addicted to backlisted. It's a rather touching. Oh, that's nice. Hello, Braga. Yeah, but he got a, a royalty check from the US for yeah. the merchandise rights alone of three thousand dollars. Can, can you imagine what Ian McKellen and and, and <laughs> I, I once um, I once did some work uh, animated uh, some Lego uh, figures for a thing that uh, when I was working at the Guardian. And um, so I was in contact with the, the people at Lego. Do you want to know the best thing about working at Lego? Go on. Is they don't give you a business card. They give you a little minifig like you with oh. your name printed on the front and your phone number on the front of the... <laughs> I mean, it'd be worth working at Lego wow. just for that, wouldn't it? I, of course, some of us have done that ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, tw- I tweeted that I, was, uh, I booked a mini break in Mordor because uh, the exchange rate was better than the EU. Did, did, anybody, did anybody have any tips? And uh, Matthew came back and said, you probably ought to ring ahead. <laughs> it's quite a good thread, that. Yeah, I did see it. I did see it. it, it, it amusing. Amusing, amusing, yes. Shall we start then? Why don't we? Hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. If this is the first time you're listening to us in 2017, then Happy New Year. You join us once more gathered around the kitchen table in the stripped-back, scandy-vibed Islington Canal-side office of our sponsors Unbound, the website which brings authors and readers together to make great books. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. Uh, And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. Happy New Year, everyone. And uh, joining us today is John Grindrod, Croydon's John Grindrod. (laughs) Happy New Year. Author of Concretopia, a book about the modernist rebuilding of post-war Britain and its associated blog, Dirty Modern Scoundrel. Uh, He's most definitely not... Uh, the John Grindrod, who was the Bishop of Brisbane from 1980 to 1989, who was the last Englishman to be elected Primate of Australia. Although if you do a Google search, quite often his biography comes up with my picture. Our John Grindrod, however, does have a new book uh, coming out in May, I believe, is that right? That is true. Called Outskirts, which is being published by Scepter. What is that book about? Like, I don't know. So that book, Andy, thank you for asking, is... uh, story of how the green belts came into being so from the kind of victorian ideas of of kind of the countryside and, and the sprawling of towns and how cities were sort of seen as evil the pits of sin right through to the kind of 1930s and 50s when they started to be sort of become an actual policy by the government and then to now where they're all sort of falling to bits we as croydon dwellers yes and uh, me specifically as a coolston dweller uh, had uh, we lived near Farthing Downs, mm-hmm. which was a, a lovely little bit of green belt, mm. unspoilt green belt land. I don't even know if that's still there or whether that's been. No, I, I grew up opposite the green belt as well, right on the edge of New Addington outside Croydon. So a lot of the book is actually a sort of family story about my family's inability to kind of quite navigate living on the edge of the countryside or integrate with the housing estate that we lived on. So there's a lot of that in it as well. We're both very pro-suburban, you can tell. Yeah, well, it's, 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 where, it's where all the action happens, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Edgelands, do you know that? Yes, that yeah, 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 it's yeah, a lovely book. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, good to have more about Croydon on there. <laughs> <laughs> but the book that John is here to talk about is, is not his own. It's Memento Mori by Muriel Spark. But actually, before we get on to that, uh, a little bit of housekeeping. Imagine our surprise, listeners, when uh, listening to one of our favourite podcasts, the New York Times book review, we got, uh, as I think they call it, Andy, a shout-out. That's what I'm told. 
uh, from John Williams, the New York Times Daily Books editor. Would you like to hear what he said? I'd love to. Even though I'm on a podcast every week or mostly weeks, um, I don't really listen to many podcasts. But one that I do is this British podcast called Backlisted. And it's sort of a book club where it's about an hour long and they choose a book based on a guest who recommends it. And then they sit around and talk about it and read passages from it. And it's all very uh, elegant and charming in that British way and very smart. And they recently did one of my favorite books, which Greg had talked about earlier this year, called So Long, See You Tomorrow, a brief novel by William Maxwell. And so their enthusiasm for it um, sent me back to it, and it's short, so that's nice. And I reread that, which is just, um, it's one of only like a handful of books that I would say is maybe perfect. So, uh, John uh, Williams, that is. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, that. thanks, John. Uh, thanks, much John. appreciated in our charming, uh, kind of, you know, understated British way. We're, we're, <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks very much. We're uh, 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 really pleased. But now, uh, Andy, can you tell us in that elegant, charming way that you have <laughs> yeah. what you've been reading? So, to slightly change the tone of what we've been talking about, we've all just come back from Christmas, and um, I'm sorry to report many of the people listening to this will be aware of this, that our friend, the agent, uh, literary agent and writer, David Miller, passed away over Christmas. And I was a friend of David's. I saw him probably about, oh, I don't know, six weeks ago. He was on terrific form. He was then, as I'm sure he will be remembered, an enthusiast. Uh, David's enthusiasm for his authors and for writing in general... Your phone would ring, you go, yes, who is it? And he'd go, Miller. <laughs> and you say, how are you, David? Sickeningly well. <laughs> and then he'd just read to you yeah. whatever he happened to be infused about at the time, be it one of his authors or be it he loved Anita Bruckner, he loved Shirley Hazard, he, uh, he loved Muriel Spark, in fact. He did. And one of the other projects that David worked on, which we're going to talk about, briefly, was a fantastic collection of a hundred short stories called That Glimpse of Truth. And David wrote a little introduction to every story that he included in that volume. And the volume is one of those volumes of short stories where the ones you know are the right ones, and the ones you don't know are usually terrific. So you look for The Nose by Gogol, and it's in here. You look for Sredni Vashtar by Saki, it's in here. You look for In Dreams Begin Responsibilities by Delmore Schwartz, that's in here. But there's all sorts of other interesting and stranger things. And there's also an index as well, but it isn't an index. It's, it's, it's J.G. Ballard's, Ballard's story, The Index, the index. Um, which takes the form of an index. But this is what David wrote about Muriel Spark. He said, um, Muriel Spark, 1918 to 2006, was the author of several novels, including The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. It should be noted that whole novel was published by The New Yorker before volume publication. Her finest fiction was short. The driver's seat is a model of sheer genius, which I read like Melville's Bartleby each year. And uh, that made me think of William Maxwell twice, because first of all, So Long See You Tomorrow was published in its entirety in The New Yorker, and second of all, if people listen to the Maxwell episode a few weeks ago, you'll remember that William Maxwell said he wasn't frightened of death. Uh, He was just sorry he wouldn't be able to read any more novels. (laughs) Novels, Uh, Which I think... um, Perhaps David, at some level, would have uh, w- would have agreed with John. Was, did you know you knew yeah, David? Yeah, I, I, I knew him. I mean, really, not 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 as a close friend, but as somebody who I always immensely look forward to seeing. He had that capacity to, to, as you say, the capacity to enthuse you on 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 anything that he was representing, but also just on literature in general. He's he was 
I mean, you know, when people talk about being well read, I mean, David had read everything. He was remarkable. I mean, you could talk, you could talk to him, for, literally pick an author out of the, of the sky, and he would have an opinion, and usually a well informed opinion. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, he laughs yeah. not nervously. Yeah. yeah. But um, and I, I, I just and I just think wonderful sitting in his office listening to a talk. He always had wonderful music playing. Was it? He was great. You know, brilliant at music. He was generous, he was funny, he was waspish. He, uh, he was kind of, in a way, concentrated. When you think of old school, the old school yeah. values of publishing. That's you know, so that, true. That, that, uh, he was like a character from a Muriel Spark novel in a way. He was so, in a way, he was so well drawn. He was so, you know, his insights were always so good. And he was also funny, you know, just used to make you yeah. roar with laughter. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Frankfurt yeah. with that. Frankfurt with David, anywhere you went, he you know he was obviously he enjoyed he enjoyed being the, the, the you know the, the person who would meet you know he'd introduce you to somebody else or drop you into the yeah. middle of a situation. He had he was you know he'd play pranks on you. But I just remember when we started Unbound, you know there was a lot of kind of a lot of agents were were sceptical, but he was fantastically supportive. Had us into the Rogers Coleridge and White office, you know, talked to us about books, and we you know we we've, we've I think um, we did in the end, we ended up doing through him and, and Peter Strauss, the Gautam yeah. Malkani book. And what I've been reading, I hadn't read his novel, which I'd always meant to read one. today, which is a remarkable book. He called and it so his dead dad book, because, I mean, in some strange way, that book has mirrored his own life. His father died suddenly, and he found that it was a tremendous blow to him. And this voice. book is about the I mean, sudden death of Joseph voice. Conrad, so, the author. I was, you know, kind of an watching a lot of Alan Bennett monologues, you know, to and it, it just kind of felt like it was. Uh, list. He, was one of, he, he was one of our, exactly. he was on, on a long list and, of people um, to have him. Uh, and the book is, like the book is, was an it's a magnificent short novel. Again, in that vein, the Maxwell vein, perfect economy. In a way, I read it with massive sadness because I found it incredibly moving. It's because he's, you know, particularly about that the, 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 the Conrad leaves two sons behind. The effect of sudden death and of, of grief and how it transfigures families. And, and, and I, I mean, found that kind of weird, even though far, it's got so many kind of quite negative things in it. Two, two it is, I mean, it is know, an amazing portrait of a, being old and it's, vital it's, it's and unlikely. But the fact that he was able to write about it, so when did she write it? She, with, was, she was 41. You know, with no sentimentality at all. It's a very it written in 1959. Albeit, as you say, it's called Today, David's novel. The Comforters, which is writing a, second a novel think, about yeah, a that's the weird thing you experience she you know, had. You when you, she, you felt I mean, there was so more to say about Muriel Spark. He said got rid of it. He said my dead dad very, very hard. got rid a long time at doing a series. Today is based on a Conrad story called Tomorrow. And there's a quote from the... And she got ill because she didn't eat enough. David put, she was I think and then she was also taking dextrin. In the and bush this somewhere, made her in the have sea, hallucinations, hallucinations on a blamed mountaintop for choice. At home, yes, where she felt the, the world was my home. Elliot, there was some but I expect I'll die in a meaning in the whole of T.S. Eliot's poetry. <laughs> Any so the place first book is about somebody as long who suffers as lived. from this strange delusion, and it got brilliant reviews. She does another kind of adventure called Robinson, and then she writes *Memento Mori*. 
which I think most Without people feel is the first uh, David Miller in it. It's brilliant. It's not going to be the spark. It really is. And she's also, she converts, number of people that you see Roman Catholicism into a party. But prior to writing this fifty-three, and she is sponsored, if that's the right word, because you knew by Evelyn Moore and Graham Greene. And Graham Greene supported her in the writing of Memento Mori. He said, as long as she promised never ever to pray for him. <laughs> he used to do this. He used to do this. You know, uh, a, a red, which a is I recommend any, any Spark fans the, to do. In the introduction I mean, to his stories, I'm just going to quote Spark fan. Yeah. He says here, necessarily a Spark fan. I, I hope the stories I never read here any reflect what writing is about: life and its complications. Roundly upbraided. Then a bit further on, George Morley, women on Twitter. Yes, fine, upstanding women on Twitter. Quite right too. But I'm totally addicted now. As I said to you guys, it's like literary crack. I just, I'm actually having to. I've done four, and I have to slow down. I, I've worked out. I, I don't want to have a year where I don't have a, a new Muriel Spark to read. <laughs> one Christmas but holiday. This is a very this is one Christmas yeah, holiday. A, a after he just won the nineteen eighty-two Nobel Prize for Literature, when I was nearly money. seventeen, and but in order to make it feel less thing, kind of, um, I asked my mother if she could buy anything by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and she came back from a case of wine as well. So somehow it made it made it feel less like charity. So, John, what is the premise? John Grinrod, what is the premise of this book? Before I read the blurb, what happens at the beginning of the book? So, at the beginning of the book, um, Dame Letty Coulson, who is the daughter um, of a brewery magnate, uh, and a penal reformer, grandee. She is writing a letter and she gets interrupted by a phone call and the caller, who was called before, says, remember you must die. And she's driven into a kind of state of great agitation about this. And uh, her brother... Godfrey reluctantly takes her in because she's a bit of a nightmare. He's also a bit of a nightmare. He is one of the great mansplainers of fiction. <laughs> he spends most of the novel telling women who are 12 times more intelligent than he is things that they wouldn't even bother thinking about. And his wife, who is infirm and is kind of slowly kind of lo- losing her, her marbles, is this wonderful romantic novelist called Charmian we'll Coulson. And they take in Dame Letty at the beginning of the book. That's right. And then it's kind of, it's sort of this awful scenario then where she doesn't want to stay with them. Everyone's resentful of everyone else. You should say two things that are really remarkable about this novel. It is a novel, uh, with one exception, that is entirely populated with people who are over 70 or in their... their, I mean, that is in itself, when you're reading it, you think, my God, I've... You know, I haven't read The Old Devils by Kingsley Amos, but I can't think of a book where old characters have been like young. Yeah. And there's the second thing is, there's no settled. You're in, you're in lots of different heads. It's, mm, it's third person, that's right? And I think that's I, my theory about why this book is perhaps less popular than some of the others with some readers who find it cold and mean. Mm. Is that you don't have a Mrs. Hawkins. You know, yeah. you do in Far Cry from mm. Kensington, who you're rooting for. Yeah. But you think, God, what a ghastly... I mean, pretty much <laughs> everybody's compromised. I mean, that's what I... You know, I haven't read any Mural Sparks other than this book, but the, the, but on reading it, I thought, at the end of it, the only two characters that are remotely engaging or pleasant, two Catholics. I don't think there's any coincidence <laughs> and Also, I, the thing I love about the book is that um, Dame Muriel... And they're both uh, converts as well. Yes, they're, they're both converts. Yeah. Dame, Dame Muriel... Dame Muriel uh, so everyone who hears... 
the voice saying, remember you, Miss Dolly, here's a different voice. Know, which yeah. is, it's and a brilliant... at near the end, oh. she just says, oh, I think it was death. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. There's no, no attempt uh, to well, explain she, the plot, she, she right? Doesn't. It's, um, it's, what's the name? It's, yeah. it's, it's well, Miss Taylor, Taylor, but then also the policeman. The policeman does Also, the they both kind of come up with this idea sort of separately. But one of the things I love about Muriel Spark novels is that she quite often is quite happy f- for you not... To not to explain people's behaviour. And also, I think, from yeah. her point of view, not to necessarily understand it herself. And I've always felt yeah. like I don't really understand other people particularly well. And um, <laughs> as a reader, I find that incredibly satisfying in her books, that there are no kind of pat explanations of why people are behaving like they also, are, why they're so deluded, why they live in these bizarre Also, worlds. she's it's a brilliant. great writer for telling... I love writers who turn to the reader at some point and either say or imply this is only a book yeah we're only reading you're only reading a book Mm. this isn't and therefore I can do what I want she doesn't do this in so much in Memento Mori but the turning to the reader in Far Cry Mm. from Kensington we'll read a bit I I, I mean Rachel was bored by it she said I I want to read this book I don't want you to listen to this this is so good but I was just saying this this book Memento Mori is I mean it's mad okay it is on one side it is a it is a meditation on the impossibility of death in the mind of the living yeah yeah and at the other time it's an Agatha Christie novel yeah, it is. It's, it is. which is about because yeah. it's got everything it's got murder with the lead um, I think I'm allowed to say it's got murder with the lead piping mm. but mm. it's also got this brilliant device that the, the phone call it's such a brilliant yeah. remember you must die and then gradually more and more of the characters and you don't know whether it's it's a kind of it's a thing is are the characters doing it to one another <laughs> yeah. or is it a kind of hallucinatory mm, yeah. hearing voices which uh, uh, kind of mass that, psychosis well, well Muriel as we yeah. know did a, had well yeah. I was going to ask had she laid off the pop the blues at this point or was she still kind of strung out she, on amphetamine yeah she, she was not strung out on that shall I, shall I just read the blurb on oh, the yeah. back of this penguin edition and then we'll ask John to read um, John Grinrod to read a little bit to us so the blurb says Dame Letty Colston 79 and pioneer penal reformer, has much in common with the elderly residents of the moored long medical ward. That's a grim scene. (laughs) All all are united by scorn, resentment, boredom, and the humour that masks the awareness of impending death. Then the insidious telephone calls begin. Remember, you must die, intones the grave, anonymous voice. As the suspicious recipients set out to unravel the macabre mystery and catch the culprit before the culprit catches them, the intrigues, duplicities and tragedies of their lives, past and present, come to light in Muriel Sparks' immortally funny parable of life and death, says Evelyn Waugh, a brilliant and singularly gruesome achievement. And he wrote The Loved One, so, so, he, so he should know. I read this and A Far Cry from Kensington and The Driver's Seat and Ooh, the, Abbess of, the Abbess of Crew. Yeah, Have you yeah. read it? Have no, read no, it? no, no. It's amazing. Oh, it's what? Completely amazing. How best what to blocks? explore the subject of the Watergate <laughs> scandal than by setting it in a convent with a load of nuns, oh. <laughs> one, of, one of whom is a Nixon but surrogate, you, one of whom is a Kissinger surrogate. I have to say, Andy, you've had, a bit of a, you've had a bit of a nuntastic year, haven't you? I have. Because you, you none, did the... None but the brave. <laughs> I have... <laughs> none better. Because you, you did the, the, the Golding one. I did The Spire by William Golding, and I did The, one the by Corner of the Helden by Sylvia Townsend Warner, really? which is almost my favourite book of last year. But my, my feeling, having read several novels by Muriel Spark, thank you, John, now, is that like 
uh, Barbara Cummings or William Maxwell, your appreciation of each book that you read deepens with every successive one that you read, right? And Spark is both quite... I find her quite demanding as a novelist, but not as a prose stylist. So in the case of Memento Mori, you're expected to take on board like this massive cast of characters and to pay attention, but there's one beautifully constructed sentence after another to yeah. get you there. She's, a, she's unbelievable. I mean, I would definitely say now, having read four, that I probably wouldn't start with Momentum Mori because I, when I went back, I read it first and was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really full on, isn't it? And then yeah. I read three more and I've gone back to, and, and to, to, to go through the book and I've realised it really, really helps to have read more Muriel's book yeah. because you realise what a remarkable thing to do for your third novel. Yeah. I mean, she is this... You know, we were talking about Jane Gardam just yeah. went upstairs. Yes, it's a bit yes. like that. She always said, in Curriculum Vitae, she says she thinks of herself as predominantly a poet. Okay? Yeah. So... She likes short stories. You know, this is actually, I think, maybe her longest novel. Mm. I don't know. It's certainly one of the longest. Yeah. And it's only, what, just, barely just, two, over, 200, just over 200 yeah. pages. John G., will you yeah. read, yeah. This? Read, will you some, read, read some from Momentum Can, I, can I read you? Yes, OK. So this is from the first chapter, uh, not quite the beginning. This is sort of following on from the setup that I said earlier. Did you have a nice evening at the pictures, Taylor? said Charmian. I am not Taylor, said Dame Letty, (laughs) and in any case, you always called Taylor Jean during her last 20 or so years in your service. Mrs Anthony, their daily housekeeper, brought in the milky coffee and placed it on the breakfast table. Did you have a nice evening at the pictures, Taylor? Charmian asked her. Yes, thanks, Mrs Colston, said the housekeeper. Mrs Anthony is not Taylor, said Letty. There is no one by the name of Taylor here, and anyway, you used to call her Jean Latterly. It was only when you were a girl that you called Taylor Taylor. And in any event, Mrs Anthony is not Taylor. Godfrey came in. He kissed Charmian. She said, good morning, Eric. He is not Eric, said Dame Letty. Godfrey frowned at his sister. Her resemblance to himself irritated him. He opened the times. Are there lots of obituaries today, said Charmian. Oh, don't be gruesome, said Letty. Would you like me to read you the obituaries, dear, Godfrey said, turning the pages to find the place in defiance of his sister. Well, I should like the war news, Charmian said. The war has been over since 1945, Dame Letty said. If indeed it is the last war to which you were referring, perhaps, however, you meant the First World War, the Crimean, perhaps. Letty, please, said Godfrey. He noticed that Letty's hand was unsteady as she raised her cup, and the twitch on her left cheek was pronounced. He thought in how much better form he himself was than his sister, though she was the younger, only 79. Mrs Anthony looked round the door. Someone on the phone for Dame Letty. Oh, who is it? Wouldn't give a name. Ask who it is, please. Did ask. Wouldn't give. I'll go, said Godfrey. (laughs) Dame Letty followed him to the telephone and overheard the male voice. Tell Dame Letty, it said, to remember she must die. (laughs) Who's there, said Godfrey, but the man had hung up. We must have been followed, said Letty. I told no one I was coming over here last night. She telephoned to report the occurrence to the assistant inspector. He said, are you sure you didn't mention to anyone that you intended to stay at your brother's home? Of course I'm sure. Your brother actually heard the voice, heard it himself. Yes, as I say, he took the call. She told Godfrey, I'm glad you took the call. It corroborates my story. I've just realised that the police have been doubting it. Doubting your word? Well, I suppose they thought I might have imagined it. Now perhaps they will be more active. Charmian says, the police? What are you saying about the police? Have we been robbed? 
I am being molested, said Dame Letty. Mrs Anthony came in to clear the table. Ah, Taylor, how old are you, said Charmian. Sixty-nine, Mrs Colston, said Mrs Anthony. When will you be seventy? Twenty-eighth of November. That will be splendid, Taylor. You will then be one of us, said Charmian. <laughs> Very good, thank you. Brilliant. I've got a review here that I found of Memento Mori by Mr L.R. Davis that was posted on Amazon on the 24th of September 2010. Four stars. Uh, Miss Sparks' little gem of a read. I have read Memento Mori twice. The first time was in the 60s, my late 20s. The second, recently, I'm approaching 80, rapidly. Age has taught me a lot, and I can now appreciate Memento Mori a great deal more than I once did. All book lovers should read it. It is a remarkable work of very considerable merit. Muriel Spark is a fine writer. In Memento Mori, she does not suffer the lazy reader. <laughs> does not suffer the lazy reader is my all-time new favourite <laughs> phrase. The main characters, quite a few, hear the imperative and experience the inevitable. Plot and subplot hold the reader and the careful ones will grasp connections missed by inattention. If you are a stranger to Muriel Spark, catch up on what you have missed. Good reading, Lionel. Good old Lionel. Good old Lionel. Why only four stars? Can I, can yeah. <laughs> can, I read, uh, can I read a small passage, which this is uh, one of those things where you... That, you know, the book, books that... There are moments in books where you think, she's actually doing this, she's actually pushing, she's pushing it. I'll give you one, just this brilliant, very short sentence. This is perfect Muriel Spark sentence, OK? There were 12 occupants of the Maud Long Medical Ward, open brackets, aged people, female... The ward sister called them the baker's dozen, not knowing that this is 13, but having only heard the phrase, and thus it is that a good many old sayings lose their force. <laughs> so, that brilliant thing of giving you a lesson while moving the story along. But listen, listen to this. This is a brilliant thing. This involves Godfrey and the fearsome Mrs Pettigrew. On the first occasion, it had been necessary for him to indicate his requirements to her. But now she perfectly understood... Godfrey, with his thin face outstanding in the dim lamplight and his excited eyes, placed on the low coffee table a pound note. And then he stood, arms dangling and legs apart, like a stage rustic watching her. Without shifting her posture, she raised the hem of her skirt at one side until the top of her stocking and the tip of her suspender were visible. Then she went on knitting and watching the television screen. Godfrey gazed at the stocking top and the glittering steel of the suspender tip for the space of two minutes' silence. Then he pulled back his shoulders, as if recalling his propriety, and still in silence, walked out. After the first occasion, Mrs Pettigrew had imagined, almost with alarm, <laughs> almost with alarm, <laughs> that his request was merely the preliminary to more daring explorations on his part. But by now she knew, with an old woman's relief, that this was all he would ever desire, the top of her stocking and the tip of her suspender. She took the pound note off the table, put it in her black suede handbag and loosened her stays. She had plans for the future. Meantime, a pound was a pound. <laughs> so, John, you were giving us some of the biography there. Yeah. We were talking about Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. That was her sixth novel. Yeah. Massively successful all over the world. In total, she wrote 22 novels, the last of which was The Finishing School in 2004. She was twice shortlisted for The Booker for loitering in Intent in 1981, uh, which is another publishing book which I very much want to read. 
1968 for the public image, the title of which inspired John Lydon's post-Sex Pistols group. No. <laughs> true? Absolutely <laughs> true. So no, cool. that's that, true. There's a, there's a tenuous link, everybody. Yeah. Muriel Spark and the Sex Pistols. She also wrote poetry, essays, short stories, many of which were ghost stories. She was always winning prizes. Volume of autobiography, Curriculum Vitae, which she mentioned. She edited selections of letters by Emily Bronte, Mary Shelley, John Henry Newman, and she wrote a biography of John Macefield. And she also wrote a children's book called The Very Fine Clock, which was illustrated... Uh, by Edward Gorey, OBE in 1967, made a dame in 1993. She wrote all her books in copperplate handwriting, straight in a single draft, into special spiral-bound notebooks imported from Edinburgh stationer's James Thin, <laughs> using only one side of the paper. Did you know that? Incredible. Incredible. One well, never went back and edited in one draft. Appar- apparently not. Would would try and stick as closely as possible to the. The first, wow. which is incredible, given her kind of, you know, the brevity of those sentences and the way that she's able to communicate things so elegantly, and also the the structure of yeah. all of the books of hers that I've read, and I've read quite a few of them. That the structure is incredible in each of them, and I think there are lots of reasons why I like different novelists. You know, I you know I like one for you know the amazing characterization, another one for kind of you know fantastic plots or whatever. I think she's got everything going on. There's a beautiful writing style, incredible characters, amazing dialogue, yeah. brilliant plot. You know, there's did, all did of she that plot stuff. it out? I mean, from that, it's not. Oh, clear. she tended. No, we. I think she tended to make it up as she was going along. That's one of the other things that she would she would see where the story would take her. I mean, she was she she kept notebooks. She was a, she mm-hmm. was a, 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 a massive hoarder, and she was in a way she's also an incredible control freak. So one of the things you get <laughs> no, from really? cur- <laughs> curriculum vitae is that she a lot of the book is spent settling scores. Really, people that she, feel, that she feel that she's yeah. been that she'd been misinterpreted, that mm-hmm. details of her life have been mm-hmm. misinterpreted, and she you know there was a certain amount of there was a poor a poor man called D- Derek Stanford who wrote an early account of her life who who becomes. Hector, Hector Bartlett, Bartlett in, in Far Cry from Kensington. But can I, can, can I, can I give you, you just, just this for a put-down from Curriculum Vitae? When she was Poetry Society president, she was very unpopular for backing the moderns. And it went, I mean, as only kind of the world of poetry can be, it got incredibly vituperative. So this is her account of one of her critics. One enraged reader who joined in the campaign of harassment against me was Dr Mary Stokes, the famous birth control expert, On that account, much to be admired. She was absolutely opposed to my idea of poetry. Up to his death three years earlier, she'd been living with Lord Alfred Douglas, the fatal lover of Oscar Wilde, an arrangement which I imagine would satisfy any woman's craving for birth control. (laughs) I I met her at one of our meetings and knew she disliked me intensely on sight. I was young and pretty, and she had totally succumbed to the law of gravity without attempting to do a thing about it. We normally uh, on Backlisted we have a a clip of um, our author talking um, where possible. Where possible, that hasn't been possible, but there is a fantastic episode of A Good Read from 2004, which you can download for free from iTunes, with um, Dame Muriel talking about the prime of Miss Jean Brodie to James Nocty, which is terrific. Um, I just want to. So can I just say that 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 vituperativeness and. The fact that she was a member of the Poetry Society makes me wonder uh, which poet she based the uh, green-fanged 
slightly malevolent poet in oh, uh, oh, Memento Mori. Yeah, I don't who know. Is, I mean, who is absolutely it, fantastic. Interesting, the only person that she ever sort of said, she says that dealing with her grandmother when she was a child, 12 years old, having to hump her grandmother in and out of bed or carry her gently, she loved her grandmother, and the amazing details of her grandmother. Most of the book is about incredibly detailed childhood memories of dresses. I mean, she... she didn't become an academic because she thought they were all rather dull and she liked charming clothes. And there was always that sort of, you know, that thing. But I think, I think it could be any one of the, the one who was the defending Percy Mannering, the yeah. one who's defending yeah. Ernest yeah. Dowson. Or, or. Yeah. And, and the whole kind of Percy Mannering and Guy Leet, who's the kind of, you know, the, hunched the, over the two sticks. from the parties <laughs> kind of wandering over the two sticks, and they have an amazing physical fight at yeah. the end of the book. That's piece. right. And then, um, and they're having a fight over um, a review of a book that one of them's done. And, they, you know, clearly all of this kind of passion and hatred, and then they end up sort of staying together for three weeks after that, you There's know, also, and they're talking about poetry, and and you know that kind of passion that they've got for what they're doing um, there's a fantastic bit as well where he sends a, a, a telegram that runs to about five pages are you sure you want to send yeah. all this <laughs> yes I do <laughs> there's a character in um, we, call, we keep talking about a, I always meant to read a far cry from Kensington when I worked in Kensington, Kensington but yeah. I never did that I'm just going to read a little bit here which anyone who's spent any time in book selling or publishing will recognise the truth of this He's a, a, publisher, a large publisher called Macintosh and Tooley, a narrator. <laughs> she says, I remember random scenes and I also remember my subsequent memories so that I recall that I was lying awake in the dark about ten years ago when to my mind came the image of a meeting and I had had in my office at Macintosh and Tooley with a young man, one of the most beautiful I have ever seen, the author of a large novel about nothing in particular. <laughs> it proved only that he passionately wanted to write. And I told him we couldn't take the book, but he should try another, more concise, not so long and rambling, and about something in particular. I recall very little else of that interview, but that he embarked on a lengthy discourse citing famous long novels about nothing in particular. <laughs> <laughs> had I read Finnegan's Wake? Yay! I had to admit I hadn't, not from cover to cover. This I, is the killer. I didn't know at the time that very few people had. <laughs> he spoke for an hour. He accepted my coffee and biscuits and went on talking. I wish I could remember more of what he said. It was extremely above my head. Had I read Buddenbrooks by Thomas Mann? I hadn't, but I had heard of it. I evaded the question by taking a chance. But that is about something in particular. He said it contained nothing but details and went on. Had I read Proust? Yes, I, I had read Proust. And you say it's about something in particular? Well, my novel is about everything in particular. So it is, I said, but it isn't Proust. So you're looking for another Proust, he said. One isn't enough. I forget how I got him out of the office. <laughs> I only remember he's going. <laughs> I mean, you have to say that, that, that there's, a, can I just, there's a great thing that A.L. Kennedy says in the introduction to this, which I, I think it, this it sums up. I mean, it, Sparks' work delights in mentioning the unmentionable that nice people think nasty thoughts and do nasty things, that dressed people can also be naked, that sex is rarely as elevated or romantic as we'd wish, that the idea of strangers or old people or ugly people having sex can be appalling, that forgetting death renders us foolish and that dying can make us seem more foolish still. The eccentric joy and energy of this novel, what may be the rush of the author's enthusiasms, her mature passions, 
is part of what makes a book on an unsupportable subject not just philosophically stimulating, but also delightful. It's, it's a, a really nice mm. kind of way of... I mean, I, it, she's, she's such an interesting novelist. I mean, she's, I mean, this book is a really interesting book. It really is an interesting meditation on, the, on, on, the, on the, how death functions. But she, she has this way. There's a great line another contemporary writer had, which I love, uh, Ali Smith. Her whole work is a sprightly philosophical rejection of 20th century angst. One of the great things about this podcast, reading women writers of the, of the 20th century, mm. you, I do wonder whether I've spent a lot of my time just reading a lot of very self-indulgent men. <laughs> you because know they're, I, they're I, so... They, this, yeah. this is, these novels are not... They're not light social novels. These are really... This is, this, <laughs> is a, no. this is a proper complex, but done with such... I mean, you know, reading the first few pages of Far Cry from Kensington, I, 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 if you can't read that and want to, I want to read on, it's the way she puts big philosophical themes down with a lightness of touch mm. and then creates these characters. And John, also, amazing resolution in, 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 in John G., did you find her funny when you first oh, read Oh, yes. Her? And that was yeah. one of the great appeals, actually, was how funny I found it. And also, one of the other things I, I really loved about her was that she would incorporate elements of other sorts of books that I really love, so like murder mystery or particularly a kind of supernatural element yeah, ghost often stories, aren't they? crops yeah. up, like the Ballad of Peckham Rye, where the devil you know, joins a company in Peckham as, you know, as the HR guy. I mean, that's the, if that isn't the best premise for a novel ever, I don't know what it is. And, um, there's a film of the driver's seat. Yeah, and there's a film, not seen And there's a film of the Abbess of Crewe called Dirty Habits. Is you know there? That? Yeah. Brilliant. And there's a film of Memento Mori. Is there? A TV film that was made by the director Jack Clayton, who in the 60s made The Innocents and Our Mother's House... And an adaptation of Penelope Mortimer's novel, The Pumpkin Eater. And it's who's in it? It's an oh, amazing it's cast. Amazing. So Michael Horden plays Godfrey. <laughs> uh, Maggie yes. Smith plays yes. Mrs. Pettigrew. <laughs> Dame Letty is Stephanie Cole. But right. um, Charmian is played by Rennie Asherton, who is absolutely heartbreakingly wonderful in it. You kind of can't stop looking at her. And but basically, every Charmian single role in it is portrayed by some incredible, like, actor you've watched all your life and I think one of the things that um, that he also did was I think he only employed elder, a really elderly crew to work on it yeah so every so the editors True. the camera people everybody were you know they'd all kind of worked on each other's so, and stuff he made it their whole life he made it for tv in the early 90s and he wanted to make it since 1959 that he but yeah. that he had that access to the rights and oh, held on to it until he was old available? enough no, no, it's not, which is a real shame. It's, uh, it's completely brilliant. I had it on video. But I know I don't have a video or, in fact, a tape, which is a real shame, but I did watch it so much because I loved it. And it's interesting. There were a few structural changes to the, that happened in it. So it's made much more of a murder mystery by moving the revelation until the very end that it is death that is phoning them all up. Right. Eric is in it a lot more. Spoiler alert. Yeah. yeah. Well, there we are. Oh, well, oh, well, we, well, we, have, oh well. We, we have said that already. We, we have, have yes. to be fair. Yeah. And, um, so. uh, you know, there are, there are kind of quite a few things like that. There's also the resolution is kind of much softer than it is in the book. Um, but one of the things I think that is so wonderful about the book is the very last 
kind of third of it becomes a much more kind of philosophical yeah, really does. and meditative yeah, yeah. thing. And all of the characters, it feels like they kind of break through this kind of very brittle wall that they have of their own understanding of death and life. And they all start even Godfrey more profoundly. I know, even Godfrey, Which who, is, you know, is, is yeah. the most infuriating character because he's... It's that thing about him splitting matches see. in half. Yeah. <laughs> so he doubles the number of... It's got, he, sits, he sits with relish drinking a scotch and soda with a razor blade, uh. splitting the matches in half. So he has twice the number of matches. I also oh. loved um, how Muriel Spark, who's you know, is a very literary writer with a very clever, un- clear understanding of the heritage of the British American and American novel, plays a joke with you in the last two pages of this book by instead of doing what Dickens would have done, which is tell you little life stories of what happened to all the characters you've been reading about, she tells you how all the characters die <laughs> in the one by one at the end of the book. You know, they don't live happily ever after. Mm. And you've got to say that, that um, I think my favourite my favorite character, I'm not going to read anymore, but it's the, it was, it's the, the guy, the gerontologist, what's his name, Alec? Oh, yeah, Alec, yeah. Yeah, who is like, it's like Casormon, this ridiculous <laughs> kind of... That's right. You know, and it, it's all these wonderful things. Do you, and one, you're... Oh, when, could, right. you, could you also write down your temperature? If you, I know this must be a shock for you, but do you think you could take all these details down? So and he has this amazing card file. Yeah. Um, it's the kind of the, the futility of scholarship. Yeah. Uh, it's, well, it's every, everybody has got their own way of trying to kind of cope with life and death in the book. And his way is so banal. <laughs> the way yeah. that, you know, the way that yeah. the details that he's collecting are so useless. I think, though, I would say it's foolproof. It, it, you know, it's f- foolproof. Spark, and if people want to, I would start if you start with Girl of Slender Means or Far Cry, mm. which are slightly later novels. Yeah. I think that I think it's 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 a it's a I, as I say, I went back to it and enjoyed it more when mm. I went back to it. I did not, I enjoyed it hugely the first time, but I think it's it's it is you 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 are slightly as, as the reviewer said, you are slightly bamboozled by the amount of stuff going on. So now we're going to do something a bit different. Thanks, uh, John G. Very much. Well, thank you for, uh, for talking to us. What a huge treat! I mean, that's yeah. been sorted for years now. <laughs> Muriel Spark, here well, we come. At the beginning, um, we were talking about David Miller, who, as we we said, unfortunately died over Christmas. And when we were preparing for our William Maxwell episode a few weeks ago, I uh, know that David was a, a huge fan of Maxwell, and I said to him, "Well, is there? What should I read? Which novel is your favourite? What story should I read?" And he said to me, I included a story in That Glimpse of Truth, a very short story called Love, which will take you five minutes to read and stay with you forever. And so as a little tribute to David and because we have connections with Maxwell here on Backlisted, John and I are going to read you to say uh, farewell, Love by William Maxwell. John, shall I read the first half? Okay. Miss Vera Brown... She wrote on the blackboard, letter by letter, in flawlessly oval Palmer method. Our teacher for the fifth grade. The name might as well have been graven in stone. As she called the roll, her voice was as gentle as the expression in her beautiful dark brown eyes. She reminded me of pansies. When she called on Alvin Ahrens to recite and he said, I know, but I can't say. The class snickered, but she said, try, encouragingly, and waited to be sure that he didn't know the answer, and then said to one of the hands waving in the air, tell Alvin what one-fifth of three-eighths is. If we arrive late to school, red-faced and out of breath and bursting with the excuse we had thought up on the way, before we could speak, she said, I'm sure you couldn't help it. 
close the door, please, and take your seat. If she kept us after school, it was not to scold us, but to help us pass the hard part. Somebody left a big red apple on her desk for her to find when she came into the classroom, and she smiled and put it in her desk out of sight. Somebody else left some purple asters, which she put in her drinking glass. After that, the presents kept coming. She was the only pretty teacher in the school. She never had to ask us to be quiet or to stop throwing erasers. We would not have dreamed of doing anything that would displease her. Somebody wormed it out of her when her birthday was, and while she was out of the room, the class voted to present her with flowers from the greenhouse. Then they took another vote, and Sweet Peas won. When she saw the florist's box waiting on her desk, she said, Oh? Look inside, we all said. Her delicate fingers seemed to take forever to remove the ribbon. In the end, she raised the lid of the box and exclaimed, Read the card, we shouted. Many happy returns to Miss Vera Brown from the fifth grade, it said. She put her nose in the flowers and said, Thank you all very, very much, and then turned our minds to the spelling lesson for the day. After school, we escorted her downtown in a body to a special matinee of D.W. Griffith's Hearts of the World. She was not allowed to buy her ticket. We paid for everything. We meant to have her for our teacher forever. We intended to pass right up through 6th, 7th and 8th grades and on into high school taking her with us. But that isn't what happened. One day there was a substitute teacher. We expected our real teacher to be back the next day but she wasn't. Week after week passed and the substitute continued to sit at Miss Brown's desk calling on us to recite and giving out tests and handing them back with grades on them, and we went on acting the way we had when Miss Brown was there because we didn't want her to come back and find we hadn't been nice to the substitute. One Monday morning, she cleared her throat and said that Miss Brown was sick and not coming back for the rest of the term. In the fall, we had passed on into the sixth grade, and she was still not back. Benny Irish's mother found out that she was living with an aunt and uncle on a farm a mile or so beyond the edge of town. One afternoon after school, Benny and I got on our bikes and rode out to see her. At the place where the road turned off to go to the cemetery and the Chautauqua grounds, there was a red barn with a huge circus poster on it, showing the entire inside of the Cells Floto Circus tent and everything that was going on in all three rings. In the summertime, riding in the back seat of my father's open charmers, I used to crane my neck as we passed that turn, hoping to see every last tiger and flying trapeze artist, but it was never possible. The poster was weather-beaten now, with loose strips of paper hanging down. It was getting dark when we wheeled our bikes up the lane of the farmhouse where Miss Brown lived. You knock, Benny said, as we started on the porch. No, you do it, I said. We hadn't thought ahead to what it would be like to see her. We wouldn't have been surprised if she'd come to the door herself and thrown up her hands in astonishment when she saw who it was. But instead, a much older woman opened the door and said, What do you want? We came to see Miss Brown, I said. We're in her class at school, Penny explained. I could see that the woman was trying to decide whether she should tell us to go away, but she said, I'll find out if she wants to see you, and left us standing on the porch for what seemed like a long time. Then she appeared again and said, You can come in now. As we followed her through the front parlour, I could make out in the dim light 
that there was an old-fashioned organ, like the kind you used to see in country churches, and linoleum on the floor, and stiff, uncomfortable chairs, and family portraits behind curved glass in big oval frames. The room beyond it was lighted by a coal oil lamp, but seemed ever so much darker than the unlighted room we'd just passed through. Propped up on pillows in a big double bed was our teacher, but so changed. Her arms were like sticks, and all the life in her seemed concentrated in her eyes, which had dark circles around them and were enormous. She managed a flicker of recognition, but I was struck dumb by the fact that she didn't seem glad to see us. She didn't belong to us anymore. She belonged to her illness. Benny said, I hope you get well soon. The angel who watches over little boys, who know but they can't say it, saw to it that we didn't touch anything. And in a minute we were outside, on our bicycles, riding through the dusk toward the turn in the road and town. A few weeks later I read in the Lincoln Evening Courier that Miss Vera Brown, who taught the fifth grade in Central School, had died of tuberculosis, aged 23 years and seven months. Sometimes I went with my mother when she put flowers on the graves of my grandparents. The cinder roads wound through the cemetery in ways she understood and I didn't, and I would read the names on the monuments, Brower, Cadwallader, Andrews, Bates, Mitchell, in loving memory of, infant daughter of, beloved wife of. The cemetery was so large and so many people were buried there, it would have taken a long time to locate a particular grave if you didn't know where it was already. But I know, the way I sometimes know what it is in wrapped packages, that the elderly woman who let us in and who took care of Miss Brown during her last illness went to the cemetery regularly and poured the rancid water out of the tin receptacle that was sunk below the level of the grass at the foot of her grave and filled it with fresh water from a nearby faucet and arranged the flowers she had brought in such a way as to please the eye of the living and the closed eyes of the dead. And that's it. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.